Father, as we undertake to do this now one more time today, I pray again for strength and for your help and your guidance. And I ask, Lord, again, that as we focus now in on the suffering of the preacher himself, that you would help men who are senior pastors in this room right now, charged with the obligation of preaching, not to grow weary in well-doing or to begrudge the lifelong seminary of suffering. Draw near now and minister to them, I pray, because some may be ready to quit right now. And I pray that you'd give them renewed hope and strength that it may be that what they're going through is not a sign to leave, but a sign of hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So preaching and the, and the suffering of the preacher. So by way of summary, leading into where we're going, if the ultimate aim of preaching is the glory of God through Jesus Christ, and if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, and if suffering threatens that satisfaction and must come to everyone, then I conclude, and it's the aim of these messages, that we should preach says to help our people say with the psalmist, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And mean it, feel it. Or to say with Paul, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We must preach with a passion to produce people whose satisfaction in God is so solid and so deep and so unshakable that suffering and death, that is losing everything on this earth, will not produce murmuring or complaining or cursing, but rather rest in the promise that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So how are we going to preach like that? That's what I want to talk about in this and the next Message And a hundred things could be said. Everything could be said. How do you so live and so preach as to produce that kind of people? I only want to say two things in this message. Number one, the preacher must suffer as part of his ministry. And two, the preacher must rejoice as part of his ministry. The preacher must be hurt in the ministry, and the preacher must be happy in God. Let's follow three generations, Jesus, Paul, and Timothy, and watch how God has appointed for all three generations that as ministers of the word, they must suffer, and how it relates to the ministry of the Word. Jesus came into the world 
We'll start with Jesus. He came into the world to suffer. He took on human flesh so that there would be something to torture. That's why he did it. He took on human flesh so that there would be a place to whip, skin to pierce with thorns. That's why he became a human, to suffer. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Again, he was teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So when Jesus preached, he was unique in that his suffering was the essence of his message. That's not the case with you. It is the case with Jesus. His suffering was the salvation that he preached. But, though you may think, well, that puts him in an absolutely unique class by himself, that's not the way he talked about his relationship to his emissaries, his ambassadors, his representatives. He said that suffering is going to be part of their ministry. Indeed, it's going to be an essential power in their ministry. I've already quoted, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You want to come follow me? Well, then come follow me. Take your cross. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You're going to join me in this. You watch me, you'll learn how it's going to be. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? It's going to be that way. If you're a member of his household and the enemies regard the householder as a devil, they won't regard you as an angel. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Or as Peter puts it, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So the suffering of Jesus is both propitiatory and expiatory, substitutionary, and it is exemplary. You don't have to worry about becoming a liberal if you believe all the Bible. It's only believing half the Bible that makes people liberals. And so he is giving us an example as well as dying for us, in his dying, and in his suffering, and in his life. And then, he comes to Paul. Actually, he says it about Paul, Acts 9, 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him how much he must suffer. For my name's sake. Now Paul understood this. 
He got it real good that his life and suffering were an intentional, Christ-appointed extension of the sufferings of Jesus into the world on behalf of those for whom Christ suffered. So he said this awesome statement in Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now that's almost blasphemy. I complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ as he suffered for his church. What does that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. I don't think it means that he adds to the atoning worth of the sufferings. You can't improve upon perfection. What he completes is the design of God in the sufferings of his son for those sufferings to be presented in person through flesh to people 2,000 or 20 years later for whom he died. Let me say it again, see if I can simplify that sentence. God's purpose in the death of Jesus and all the suffering that went into it is not that that suffering terminate and end there, but that it be embodied in the spokesman for the cross in all cultures everywhere so that their suffering is a mirror of his sufferings and the people to whom they commend Christ crucified, see Christ crucified in the suffering of the emissary. That's part of the strategy of world missions, which is why the Great Commission will not be done without massive suffering, which is why I'm on a crusade to gather martyrs everywhere I go. I believe in the Great Commission. I believe in finishing and reaching the unreached peoples, and they're almost all among the hardest places now. Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, major blocks with huge obstacles and tremendous violence and horrific dangers. And unless we have 100,000 young people and middle-aged people and retired people go and fall at the swords, the second 100,000 will not bear fruit. So which 100,000 will you? Paul had to suffer. It was an essential extension of the sufferings of Christ. Why? Why? Well, now, besides being, according to Colossians 1.24, an embodiment of and a completion of, in the sense of being an extension of the sufferings of Jesus in his own sufferings, here's the second answer as to why it must be. It comes from a testimony in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. It goes like this. We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. So this is a bad, 
terrible experience. He, he thought it was over. He thought it was absolutely over. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Now notice the so that clause. It's a purpose clause. We had this sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God at the point where the only thing He has left to do is raise us from the dead. Do you see here a design? There's a design in suffering. And it isn't Paul's, and it isn't Satan's. Satan is not eager to get Paul to stop relying upon himself. That's the design. Whose design is that? It's God's design. We were so unbearably crushed, we despaired of life itself in order that we might fulfill this high, holy calling of God no longer to depend on health and wealth and life and family and ministry and esteem and nature and the delights of this world, but on one thing, God who raises the dead. That's the, the design of my crisis in Asia. And it was God's design. They meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God ordained the suffering of his apostle so that he would be radically dependent on God. He says it another way. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 begins with the word for. And the reason that story of Paul's suffering in Asia and its purpose in his dependence on God is introduced with the word for is because it supports verses 3 to 7, all of which say one thing. My suffering and its accompanying comfort is designed for your suffering and accompanying comfort. And that it's designed to support you. You can see it in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 1. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So Paul's affliction as a minister was not only to extend the sufferings of Christ to those for whom he died, and not only to experience his own props being knocked out from under him so that he can only rest in God. It was for the sake of the church so that as they see Paul praising God alone, ready to lose everything because of the surpassing value, they would cherish Christ and find comfort in Christ in all their afflictions. Oh, the high calling of a suffering pastor. Now how does this work? How do Paul's sufferings 
help his people find comfort and satisfaction in God alone. Now, Paul talks about this a lot, especially in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says. This is chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure. He's talking about the treasure of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And here's the purpose. That is, why is he so frail? Why is he so vulnerable to suffering? Why are there so many weaknesses, calamities, hardships, persecutions? Why is he beat up? Why does he carry in his body the death of Jesus? Why is he being lacerated five times? Why has he been beaten with rods three times? Why has he been shipwrecked? Why is there danger on the seas and danger on the highways? Why has he been sleepless nights? Why does he go without food? Why, Paul? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. In other words, these terrible things he's just listed here happen to him to show that the power of his ministry is not ex moon, not from ourselves. Don't begrudge the seminary of suffering in your ministry, which is designed to make it plain to your people that nothing good comes from you, but from God alone. Don't begrudge that. Paul's suffering is designed by God to magnify the surpassing power of God. He says it again, verse 10 of chapter 4. Always carrying about in my body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Isn't this strange? Most Americans think exactly the opposite. If I could just be as healthy and as happy and as prosperous and as rah-rah and as effective a communicator as possible, then we'd have success. And you know what? You will. Fatal success. Big church. Big prosperous church. We got lots of them in the Twin Cities. Big prosperous churches. I carry death of Jesus in my body so that the life of Jesus, not the life of Paul, would be manifested in my body. He shares the sufferings of Christ to display the life of Christ. The aim of the ministry of the preacher is to display Christ. It's to display Christ, to show that he's more to be desired than all the comforts of the world. How are you ever going to show that to your people if everything goes well for you? The suffering of the preacher is designed to make clear that Christ is in fact valuable and precious. I die daily, he says, so that the surpassing value of Christ will be seen in my suffering body. That's how it works. Paul's suffering, accompanied by his satisfaction in God, manifests to the world the sufficiency of Christ for him, the preciousness of Christ to him, and therefore they can see it and they can cherish it and they can 
be content in suffering themselves. Let's let him say it again. Can't say it too many times. It's just so strange. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace, Jesus says, when Paul asked that the thorn of the flesh be removed, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. My power, Jesus means, is perfected in your weakness. Paul responds, most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So the point of Paul's thorn in the flesh is to humble him and to magnify the all-sufficiency of the grace of Christ. It had a design in it. And though it was a messenger of Satan, the design was God. I love to say that out loud so Satan can hear it. Lackey, leash, controlled dog, you do nothing to me. But what is the design of my Father for my holiness? Eat, crow. Satan has no independent status. Read Job. Now, how does it work? How does it work? Well, we've seen it. One, he displays the surpassing greatness in Paul's suffering. Two, he displays the triumph of the life of Jesus in Paul's suffering. Three, he displays the surpassing grace of Christ and the perfection of it in Christ's sufferings. And then people see the suffering and the superiority of Christ and their lives are transformed because, here's the principle laid down in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Why do you see it? See it in the suffering of the apostle or the suffering of the cross or the suffering of your pastor. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness with one, from one degree of glory to the next. That's what we're after in preaching. We're after a transformed people. Transformation comes by seeing the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is exalted through the suffering of the apostle. Therefore, if you want people to be transformed so that the glory of God shines through their lives, you must suffer. Let him say it again in this cryptic sentence from 2 Corinthians 4.12. Death works in us, but life in you. Pastor, do you resent that? Are you ready to quit because of that? Death works in us, but life in you. Suffering, weakness, calamity, hardship. They work death in Paul. And in so doing, the surpassing greatness of, of Christ. His life shines through Paul. 
And then people see that. And seeing, they're changed. And being changed, God is glorified. And the great end of, of the pastor is achieved. So, to summarize the first two generations, we're doing three generations, Jesus, Paul, and Timothy. Um, Christ comes to preach and suffer. His suffering and his death are the heart of his message. He appears to Paul and shows him how much he must suffer on the Damascus Road. And then in Paul's suffering, Christ is seen and people are changed into people who value this Christ more than they value anything. And the glory of God shines in the church. Not the glory of stuff. Now Timothy. What about Timothy? Now moving toward you. I'm trying to make sure you see that this is not unique to Paul. Because you might say, well, that was, that was apostolic calling. It's not our calling. But I don't think you can get off the hook that way. Because in, in 2 Timothy, as Paul writes to this pastor, this pastor of the local church in Ephesus, in 2 Timothy 2.10, he gives himself as an example and he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory. So he puts himself up first as a model here. I endure, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. God's assignment to him was endure for the sake of the elect. But then he gives Timothy a calling makes it very clear, and I think the calling comes over to us as well. 2 Timothy 2.2 2 and 4.2. Um, let's just take these two functions of the, of the pastor. And if you're maybe a student worker, you'll think of this. Discipling people and preaching to people. And they overlap, of course. Both of them will cost you big time. Let's just look at this. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2. here's discipling, favorite verse of navigators and other people like that. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, suffer hardship with me. See, the people who quote verse 2 don't always read the next sentence. And trust these things to faithful men. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So my inference from that is, if you undertake to spread the deposit of truth given to you in the scriptures to other people who can faithfully spread it to others, you will suffer. You will suffer. Endure hardship. Suffer hardship with me as you do this. It's a command to Timothy. Take preaching, 2 Timothy 4, 2-5. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Provoke, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. That's happened and is happening. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You, 
Be sober in all things and endure hardship. So there it is again. Just like he said, when you try to disciple men and impart to them the deposit of truth, you must endure hardship here. When you preach and you're instant in season and out of season and you get involved in all kinds of controversies because people are not going to want to hear what the truth is, endure hardship. Preach the word. The price of preaching is suffering. So I said at the beginning, there are a hundred things you could say about the way that we help people get ready to suffer by being satisfied in God above all things. And I said the first one was, the preacher must suffer. And now the second one is, the preacher must rejoice. He must rejoice. The preacher must be hurt in the ministry, and he must be happy in God. So let's end by thinking for a little bit about that. How does it happen that the people come to learn to suffer? And the answer is, today, in this message, there must be a suffering pastor and there must be a happy pastor. And they're the same. You don't divvy that up on the staff. <laughs> now, it's true for all of us, not just Paul. Paul says... Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. He's writing from prison, talking to all the church at Philippi. He said to the Romans, we exult in the glory of God, the hope of the glory of God, and not only so, but we exult in our tribulations. So it applies to everybody that we should rejoice in our tribulations, but, but for preaching purposes, we want to zero in on what Paul said about himself. What did Paul say about himself and his ministry of the word in relation to joy in suffering? Let me just give you a few examples. He did not say to the Colossians, I suffer for your sake. He said, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So pastors, if that's not something you can do, you need to repent and take a, a, a leave or a, a few days and go away and get on your face in fasting and prayer before the Lord and ask for the miracle that it takes to be a preacher. He did not say to the Corinthians, I boast about my weaknesses. He said, most gladly will I boast about my weakness. That's verse 9 of chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians. And you say, wasn't Jesus a man of sorrows? Didn't Paul have sorrow? And the answer is avalanches of sorrow. But listen to how he talks. This is verse 10 of chapter 6 in 2 Corinthians. As sorrowful 
yet always rejoicing. You say, I don't get it. Go to Arabia and take three years. If it, if, if it takes three years, go there till you get it. Because that's the essence of the Christian life, especially the Christian pastorate. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. When he writes to the Thessalonians, I'm taking different churches here to see if he talks the same way to people. When he writes to the Thessalonians and he wants to commend them for their faith, listen to how he talks. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. So there's my three generations again. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see the, you see the, the, the point of the imitation? The point of the imitation is not single, it's dual. You became imitators of us, receiving the word in much tribulation with joy. Said exactly the same thing to the Corinthians in chapter 8. When the grace of God was poured out, he told the Corinthians, in the churches of Macedonia, because in a great trial of affliction, their poverty and their exceeding joy overflowed with great liberality. I mean, these early Christians were of a breed different from what I see in the American evangelical church. And I just don't want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of that. So I'm preaching to myself. So why this stress on joy as we close here? Let's answer this. I've answered it before. I'm going to answer it again and again. Why this stress on joy? You can sum it up like this. The aim of preaching is the glory of God through Jesus Christ. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Suffering is a great threat to that satisfaction and therefore to the glory of God. We're tempted to murmur and complain and blame and even curse God. Therefore, joy in God in the midst of suffering makes the worth of God, the all-satisfying glory of God, shine more brightly. And therefore, joy in suffering is essential to accomplish the great aims of preaching, which is the glory of God. Sunshine happiness signals the value of sunshine. Happiness in suffering signals the value of God. Suffering and hardship joyfully accepted in the path of obedience to Christ shows the supremacy of Christ more than all our faithfulness in fair days. So, when a preacher preaches with his joy, 
and his suffering, the people will see Christ for the infinite value that he is. And he will cherish Christ as the most precious treasure in the universe. And he will therefore be changed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ. This is from the Lord, the Spirit. And therefore the glory of God will be magnified in the church and in the world. And the great aim of preaching will be achieved. Let's pray. Father, as I look out on this congregation, I see, I see people I know who've walked through some pretty dark things in recent days and will never look on any other kind of congregation. And therefore, I pray that you'd make us brokenhearted in our preaching and tender in our contending and that you would fit us to love our sheep who are all going to suffer if they aren't right now, who are all going to die, and who need to be helped to not only know how to bring you glory in suffering, but to see how in the life of the preacher. So Lord, for all those here who are going to be called to preach, would you use this moment in their lives to set them on a course to discover in their hearts whom have we in heaven but thee? And on earth there's nothing that we desire besides thee. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Through Christ I pray. Amen.